Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Steve Fowler. Hey, we wrapped up a series last week uh, called Imago Jesus and Our Family Gathers uh, series. I apologize, there's no fruit snacks today. Uh, that's a once a year thing. And, uh, but Ephraim did such a great job wrapping up that series. Talking about how Jesus, uh, he comes to us in, in our place of shame and how he, he not only restores us, but then he recommissions us. Man, that, doesn't that just provide significant hope for us? For those who feel like we've, we've blown it, we're failures, we've disqualified ourselves, that effort did such a great job uh, helping us understand the heart of God. Well, in this month, we're starting a new series. It's just a short series, three weeks. We're calling it the Jesus Stuff, and I know right away you are so impressed by the sophistication of the title. Um, but let me explain this a little bit, because we're just talking about this, the, the stuff Jesus did. And we're doing this because Luke chapter 6, verse 40 uh, says, says these words. Uh, it says that, that, that the student is not greater than the teacher. And the student who is fully trained, however, will become like the teacher. One of John's one of Jesus' disciples, John, uh, said this in First John: "Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did." There's this expectation for those of us who do follow Jesus that we would begin to look like Him, and you probably know this quite well that that just didn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by accident. You don't wake up in the morning and go, "Wow, I'm I'm just like Jesus." I'll, I'll try that. Send that to Trina sometime. I'm sure it won't go very well. Uh, it, the, it takes formation. It takes, it takes time. It takes the Spirit's work in us. And this is why Paul will write to one of his churches and he will say, I am I'm agonizing as if I were in childbirth that Christ might be formed in you. That, that, that Jesus might take shape in you and that you and I, we might be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So we're going to be talking about the Jesus stuff, the kind of stuff that Jesus honed in on, the kind of things that he gave his attention to. We're going to be talking about his mercy, his miracles, and his message in, in, this, uh, in this month. And uh, we're going to begin today talking about his mercy. Now, years ago, there was a, a young woman, she was 15 years old, got her driver's license. Uh, she got her driver's license in the state of Maine. That's why you can get it at age 15. And she's driving a car. She's 15 and a half, driving in rural southern Maine. It's in the middle of a Saturday night. It's in the middle of nowhere, pre-cell phones. And she's driving along, and there's this loud sound, and she hears the, this, feels the vibration in her car. Uh, her, her tire has burst, and she has a flat tire. She pulls over the side of the highway. Now, immediately she remembers that she was in driver's ed and there was a, there was a course, the part of the course was how to change a flat tire. But when that part of the course was being explained, uh, she told herself she didn't need to pay attention because she had a rather new car and this wouldn't happen to her. But lo and behold, she's in the middle of nowhere, it's in the middle of the night and uh, she is stranded. As she's standing on the highway, looking at her flat tire, scratching her head, wondering how in the world is this all going to be resolved, again, pre-cell phones, she hears the sound of a vehicle approaching. And as she looks down the highway, she sees the, the lights of a car, they're coming, actually it's a truck, and as it comes closer, it, she can see that it's slowing down, it's pulling over to the side of the highway, the side of the road, and uh, it's driving very slowly on the shoulder up right behind where her car is. And as 
The car pulls up. She looks at the truck and realizes, uh, I don't recognize this truck. And the ignition gets turned off. No one gets out of the truck immediately, and she can tell that her pulse is escalating. Anxiety is beginning to rise quite quickly, and she feels in danger. She's 15 and a half. She's a young woman in the middle of nowhere, and a large truck is pulled up behind her. And finally, the driver's door opens, and a man gets out, shuts his driver's door, and walks ever so slowly up to where she is. He pauses, and he says, ma'am... I'd like to help you uh, fix your flat tire. Huge sigh of relief. Trunk is opened. uh, Spare tire is retrieved. Jack, tire iron. The man jacks up the car, changes the flat tire, puts the the, the burst out tire in in her trunk, hardly says a word, and goes back into his truck and drives away. And I share the story to simply make this point. The kind of person who rescues you matters. Right? Because you can be rescued by someone and feel like yeah, that you are, you are carrying shame. You can be rescued by someone who says, what were you thinking? But the kind of person who rescues you matters. And as we talk about the Jesus stuff and we talk about our rescuer, Jesus, can we just remind ourselves that Jesus, Jesus is one of the most kind people you will ever meet. He's so generous and hospitable and he's attentive and he's affectionate. He's open-handed. Jesus, when I imagine him looking at us, he smiles. He's endearing. He's profound word. He's nice. He's kind. Jesus, our rescuer, is so big-hearted and soft-hearted and tender-hearted. And the kind of person who rescues you and I matters so deeply. And in fact, as you begin to look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, here's what you see over and over again. You see the kindness and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus just seeping from him towards those he encounters. We're just going to throw a bunch on the screen. You you get a chance to just just see this. John chapter 4, Jesus encountered a nobleman whose son was dying and moved by compassion, he healed him. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus moved by compassion, healed people of their sicknesses, and fed the 5,000. Mark chapter 1, Jesus passed through Capernaum and encountered a leper, and moved by compassion, he cleansed him. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus had compassion for a crowd of 4,000 and fed them because they had not eaten in three days. And still yet again, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, moved by compassion, delivered a man from demons. And still yet again, Luke chapter 7, Jesus saw a widow burying her only son, and Jesus, moved by compassion, resurrected him. Friends, our Jesus is so attentive and so caring and kind and and so, so... He so cares about us and he's so big-hearted and soft-hearted and tender-hearted and the kind of person who rescues you and I, us, matters. And our Jesus is overflowing with mercy and compassion. The English language really struggles to capture the, the multiple dimensions of this compassion and mercy. But the language in which the scriptures were written has, is, is very clear on this. There's multiple words that are translated into the English language, uh, that the word mercy or compassion. Well, one of the, the original language words, the Greek words, is this word that describes the emotion that comes on you when you see someone's circumstances or you hear about something. 
Katrina was on a flight recently. She's coming back from watching grandkids. She makes a connection in Minneapolis. She's sitting on her plane, and as people are coming onto the plane, she realizes that there is a family coming onto the plane, a large family. It's a refugee family. And as they're coming onto the plane, it dawns on her that, no, this is not just any ordinary refugee family. This is a family that has fled Afghanistan. A mom and a dad and eight children. She's starting to count and she sees that they have their belongings uh, placed in a cloth and the the top of the cloth is just tied in a knot to to hold them. No suitcases, no carry-ons, just sheets with their belongings in them. Their children, when they're being evacuated from Kabul, one day after the bombing, if if you were watching the news... One day after the bombing, when servicemen and women lost their lives and Afghanis lost their lives, this family was there. They saw that, heard about that. The trauma that they were experiencing, the, the kids layering up clothing just so they can take as much with them as possible. They're getting on the plane, and it dawns on Trina as she's counting how many people are part of this family that there's 10. We've been talking about a family of 10 coming to Salem. And it hits her. This is that family. They've been evacuated and they're coming to Salem and the emotion hits her and her eyes begin to fill up with tears and the compassion and mercy captures her. It's it's an emotion. It's an emotion that's not connected to an an action. That's not a bad thing. It's just you see someone's circumstances and, and, and it just moves you. And the team, our Salem for Refugees team was there to meet him at the airport. And by the way, the dad said, I wondered when I came to America if the Americans would really want me. And when he saw the Salem for Refugees crew welcoming his family, it brought peace to him. That's one form of compassion. Another form of compassion or mercy is you have no idea what the story is, so there's no emotion connected to the kindness, but there's a benevolent action that you, that you engage in. It's like maybe you gave the same alliance to, to help care for families like this. That, that's, that's another word that describes mercy. Or maybe last year when the fires were raging in Oregon that you gave to the fire response fund because you wanted to care for people who lost their homes and their belongings. That's, that's mercy and compassion. The tears didn't well up in your eyes. You didn't know the stories, but you wanted to get engaged. You wanted to show compassion. Or maybe you gave our Easter offering in 2020 that went to help people who, during COVID, they they couldn't go to work. The restaurant was closed. Their gym was closed down, and so their income was impacted, and you you gave. It's action devoid of emotion. Not a bad thing. That's mercy. It's compassion. Or on the other side, it's emotion without action. It's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But those two scenarios are not what's happening here in Luke chapter 7. Here's, I'm going to look at the story in Luke chapter 7, the, the story of the, of the widow of, of Nain. When Jesus is moved by compassion, it's actually a different word used in the original language, which means to get all twisted up inside. Become, this, this, it's this gut-wrenching moment when you see someone's circumstance, you hear their story, the tears well up in your eyes, and you just can't help yourself but get involved. You have to do something. It's a Greek word. It's called splagnizomai. Big word. You don't have to remember it. The way I remember it is I just remember the word splag. S-P-L-A-G, splag. Jesus gets splagged over and over and over again. And the kind of person who rescues you 
matters. And our rescuer, our Jesus, is so big-hearted, so soft-hearted, so tender-hearted. I wonder if we know this Jesus. This is our rescuer. Let me read the text, Luke chapter 7. Again, the story of the, the widow from the village of Nain, one of the ones that I highlighted as we were just noticing Jesus' compassion Luke 7, verse 11, soon afterwards, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. There it is, splagnitsamai, he got splagged. Don't cry, he said. And he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. Wouldn't you like to be at a funeral like that one? <laughs> and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd. I, I get that. And they praised God, saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Because the kind of person who rescues you matters. Jesus is big-hearted and soft-hearted and tender-hearted. I wonder if we know this Jesus. Jesus is in a procession of his own. We're going to have a collision here in Luke chapter 7. We've got the procession of Jesus, and then we've got a funeral procession, and it's going to be a head-on collision. A head-on collision of two processions. Jesus has been in Capernaum. That's the beginning of Luke chapter 7, and he's making his way to the village of Nain. We, we, this is the only time in scriptures we hear about the village of Nain. Let me throw a map on the screen. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. You'll see Capernaum at the top of the, the very top there of, of the Sea of Galilee. You go all the way down to the bottom of the map that's on the screen, and you'll see Nain. It's about 25 miles. It's on a main thoroughfare pathway to go to Jerusalem. You would go by the village of Nain, and Jesus is likely, because it's 25 miles, it's been a day's journey. And so he's coming to the village, and he's coming to, to rest uh, in the village for the evening as he continues on uh, in his preaching of the kingdom of God. As he comes, uh, he encounters a funeral procession. Now, let's talk about this because funerals in those days uh, were quite different than funerals in our day. Uh, it's a sad day, but this is a sad, sad day. You see, when someone passed away in the Middle East, they were often buried that very same day because of the, the heat, the climate. And so the body would be wrapped up in a sheet and it would be placed on what would be, uh, it's called a funeral beer. Think, think of like a stretcher. Here's a picture uh, from uh, years ago in, in Palestine of a funeral procession, uh, a body being carried on a stretcher-like funeral beer. What's missing in this picture is the crowds. Because what would have happened in that day and age is there's no obituary to be printed into a newspaper. There's no invitations or phone calls to be made to, to invite you to memorial service. No, in, in this case, what's happening is the person who has experienced loss will, uh, will hire professional mourners. Not because they want to fake their sorrow, but because when they go into the street, they want to loudly cry so that others in the village will know that someone has passed. 
And it was culturally appropriate that when you heard professional mourners wailing, that you would join the funeral procession. And so you have this funeral procession. Again, it's a sad day. All funerals are sad, but this is a sad, sad day. It's sad because we have a woman who is a widow. This has already happened to her. She's buried her husband. And now she is going to bury her only son. And it just happened. She hasn't had time to process her loss. She's just trying to put one foot in front of the other in her grief and make her way to this burial of her son. And for her, this is a significant loss of family. There's no legacy to be carried on, no family name. And more pragmatically, there's a loss of provision. There's no husband to provide. There's no son to provide. There's no social security. There's no food stamps. She's entering into a season of great destitution. Her only probably hope will be that she will just be a beggar and people will give to her. And this is the widow. This is the funeral that's taking place. And she's coming out and the collision is about to take place and Jesus is coming with the crowd and they're excited because there's been healings and there's been great teaching and they love being around Jesus and, and Jesus sees this funeral and he gets all twisted up inside. It's blagged. You ever been there? Seen someone's circumstances and gone, oh my goodness. The tears fill your eyes and you think to yourself, I've got to do something. Friends, I think that perhaps all the charities and, and ministries are catalyzed in moments like this. And around the year 2000 here at Sam Alliance, someone noticed that the poor in our city couldn't afford to heat their home in the winter. And so the Royal, of, Royal Order of Red Suspenders was birthed. Roars. And people went around chopping wood, and then when phone calls would come in, they would go deliver cords of wood to the poor in our city so they could have a warm house during the, the, the cold season. There was also of those who went around the Edgewater District in West Salem and began interviewing and, and surveying neighbors and saying, hey, what's the greatest need in, in your neighborhood? And they said, you know, we just don't have any health care, and there are people who are sick, and they have nowhere to go. There's no doctors that will care for them. And Salem Free Clinics has this genesis in those, those surveys, those questions that were asked, because someone got all twisted up inside and said, I can't take it. Some, someone's got to do something. The furniture bank, this, it, stories like women coming out of domestic violent situations and being given a home or an apartment placed in it, but there's no furniture and children are sleeping on the floor and mom is sleeping on the floor, no pillows, no mattresses, no couches, no dinner tables, no dressers, and someone saw it and they got all twisted up inside because the, the, it just can't happen. And they got splagged. And this is what Jesus is feeling as he sees this woman. And so we see the heart of Jesus, big-hearted, soft-hearted, tender-hearted. And he walks over to the woman, and now we're going to see the power of Jesus. He walks over to the woman and says, don't cry. Had to be startling words. Don't, don't cry. And then he goes and he touches the stretcher with the body. We quickly would move past that statement as we read our Bibles, but a, a Jew reading this in that day would go, hold, hold on a second. 
Because what Jesus has just done is he's violated the, the ritual purity laws. If you're clean, ritually, you don't touch what is unclean. And a dead body is unclean. And if you touch what is unclean, that uncleanness gets transferred to you. Remember cooties in elementary school? That's, that was the law. You, if, you're, if you're clean, you avoid all that is unclean. But Jesus crosses that line, and friends, he turns it upside down. Because in the past, it's been, if you're clean and you touch something that's unclean, that, that defiles you, that uncleanness comes upon you. But when Jesus touches, his cleanness actually, he's not defiled by it, actually his purity, his holiness actually remedies the situation, and that person becomes clean. This is why when he touches someone who is sick, they become well. This is why when he touches someone who's, who's demonized, they become set free. This is why when Jesus touches someone who is dead, they come alive. Jesus turns it all around, and the, the character and the type of person who rescues you is so important. It matters, and this is your Jesus. I wonder, do you know him? He's so kind, so attentive, affectionate. This is your Jesus. And Jesus touches, and he says, I say to you, little boy, get up. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? And the boy sits up and starts talking, and we read that he's given back to his mother, and his mother, her circumstances have changed because of the touch of Jesus. She goes from grief to joy. She now goes from being alone and isolated to having family, from destitution to hope, all because someone got all twisted up inside. And the heart and the power of Jesus combined to radically display the love of Christ. In the early 1970s, there were Christians who became quite concerned about the, the moral trajectory of our nation. They began talking about creating a social agenda to, to address this, this decline in our nation and to, and to take a stand and say, this can't be, this can't be anymore. And in the late 1970s, this social gathering of, of conservative Christians began to be launched and a new society was formed. It was called the Moral Majority. It was led by a, a prominent Baptist minister. His name is Jerry Falwell. And Falwell and Pat Robinson and what would become more than two million members of the moral majority would, as people look back on it, say that actually that this gathering helped get President Reagan elected to the Oval Office in 1980. And if you've read anything about the moral majority, I believe actually that the motives were good. They wanted, to, they wanted to reverse the moral decline in our nation, but as they began to articulate what they were up to, they, uh, in sort of manifesto fashion, uh, articulate what that would be, and, uh, and Falwell will write that they will combat... They will combat amoral liberals, drug abusers, the coddling of criminals, homosexual communists, and pro-choice abortionists. And I can't help but wonder as I look at the stuff that Jesus was a part of and I think about Luke chapter 6 verse 40 in which the student is not greater than the teacher and that the student who is properly trained looks like the teacher. And as I think about the ministry and how Jesus moved, I have to ask myself the question, I wonder what would have happened in the late 1970s if a moral majority was not launched, but actually a mercy majority. 
What would have happened in our nation if, in fact, grace was shown to, as the words from the manifesto say, uh, grace was shown to amoral liberals? What would have happened if kindness was extended to those who were abusing drugs? What would, the, what would our nation look like if, if felons and criminals, people who, who made mistakes, actually were shown compassion? What would it look like if instead of combating, but there had been discourse and understanding between us and the gay community, what would it look like instead of fighting, combating, pro-choice, abortionists, if there might have actually been kindness extended to those who have engaged in abortions? What? What would have happened? And I don't know, but even if I, as I ask the question, there's this internal tension that takes place in me. Maybe it doesn't happen to you, but there's something in me. Say, well, hold on a second. That stuff's, got, that stuff's not right. So it's got to change. So someone's got to take a stand. Someone's got to have the courage and face it and, and say, we, we, can, we can't have this. And, and there's this tension. And if we show mercy rather than standing up, aren't we condoning it? Aren't we complicit? Friends, isn't that the same type of question that the Pharisees asked Jesus? Why do you let that prostitute touch you? Why are you spending time with tax collectors? Why do you have dinner with scum and notorious sinners? Why are you healing on the Sabbath? Could I be so bold as to say that the moral majority that was launched in 1979 was not new. That was happening in Jesus' day. And as Jesus came and he sought to transform his nation, as he sought to transform the Jewish people who would then go out into all the world, his lead was not correcting people's behavior. His lead was actually being all gut-wrenched and turned around in the side and being moved by compassion, he heals a leper. Being moved by compassion, he heals an old man's son. By he, being moved by compassion, he raises a widow's son back to life. It's the same time as I go, hold, hold on a second. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to be holy? Aren't we supposed to be righteous? Doesn't God care about that? Of course he does. That's actually why he sent his son. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God longs for people to be made holy and longs for them to be made right, to be righteous. The scriptures say, be holy as I am holy, recording God. Holiness and righteousness is very important to God. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus led with compassion and mercy. In, God, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus' brother James would write, mercy triumphs over judgment. Paul, writing to a church in Colossae, will mash holiness and mercy. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, there's holiness, you must clothe yourselves. You would expect to hear purity, righteousness, morals, and Paul says, no, I want you to close up with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But wait a minute, if I lead with tender, if I'm big-hearted, if I'm soft-hearted, if I'm tender-hearted, then it's going to seem like nothing is going to change and things are going to keep going the direction I don't want them to go, friends. That is not the testimony of Scripture. Isn't this why Mary Magdalene became a follower of Jesus? 
She experienced the mercy and compassion of Jesus. Isn't this why Matthew left his tax collector booth? Is this not why Zacchaeus gave back four times of what he stole from his own neighbors? Because people encountered the kindness of Jesus and the kind of person who rescues you matters. And when you experience that kind of rescue, you actually recalibrate yourself. You actually realign yourself with the way of Jesus. And this is the stuff that Jesus gave himself to. I wonder, do we know this Jesus? Is this the Jesus we know? And again, the the question that I put up on the screen, what would America look like today if instead of birthing a moral majority in 1979, a mercy majority was launched? I wonder what our relationship with the gay community would be like. I wonder what our relationship would be like with those who are pro-choice. I wonder how people would feel who spent time in prison about, I wonder what they feel about the church. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And can I just say to you, it's not too late. You're doing it. You are doing it. And it's making a difference because it's the Jesus stuff. It's what he gave his life to. And the kind of person who rescues you matters. May I ask a couple questions in wrapping up? First question is this. What's the first word you use to describe God? It's really important. I remember I was in my ordination interview, which as a pastor is kind of a big deal. That's when you get your title reverend that I never used because you're probably more reverend than I am. <laughs> I hear an amen from the front row. It's my wife. They asked the question, describe God. I, I got stumped. I had all this information in my head. I, I mean, I packed a lot in there and I, I didn't know what they were looking for and so I, in a moment of desperation I just responded and said uh, he's big <laughs> and they chuckled and laughed and how would you describe God what's the first word you would use do you know that God actually describes himself to us time and time again he described himself to Moses Moses said I want to see your glory God puts him in a cleft of a rock In Exodus chapter 34, captures God describing himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I don't think God is ever haphazard in the words that he chooses. And I find it utterly pleasantly astounding that his lead is compassion and grace slow to anger oh my friends I feel like there's a famine of mercy in our day is this the God you know do you know this Jesus because the kind of person who rescues you matters second question I have for you is simply this what's the first word people use to describe you What's the first word they used to describe me? I, you probably got this nailed, but I got work to do. I have work to do. What would happen if a group of people got about the Jesus stuff and said, you know, 
I want to be formed into the image of Christ. I want to represent him well. And mercy and compassion seems to be so important to Jesus. So fill me, Lord. Fill me. What would your neighborhood look like? Family. Your workplace. Our city. I think it would look like a lot of the stories you read about, about Jesus. And those stories are being written. Those stories are being told. And the fact of the matter is, is there's some of you in the room today that you need this touch of Jesus. You need mercy. So in fact, right now, I'm going to invite you to stand. If, if you need mercy and compassion right now, you're like that woman who's burying her son. There's great sadness you're dealing with, or perhaps it's your kids have gone sideways, or you have a health issue. You stand right now. Those of you who, who need, you need this big-hearted, soft-hearted, tender-hearted touch of Jesus. I just want to pray a release of mercy over you this morning. The kind of mercy and compassion that we've been reading about. I'm just asking the Father to release his heart towards you. I don't know all your circumstances, but Jesus does, because there's a collision taking place. He wants you to know he sees you. And those of you who are remaining seated, you can just stretch out a hand and you might know someone who's standing and you just want to say, Lord, would you just pour out your compassion on them? House churches, same thing. You're standing. Those in the house church can just stretch out hands. Father, the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. These dear ones who are standing in the room today need your touch, your compassionate touch, the kind of compassion that gets you all twisted up inside and causes you to intervene. These dear ones need this today. Oh, Lord, would you open the windows of heaven and pour out your compassion on them? Would you speak words to them? Would you call scripture to mind for them? Would you cause pictures to arise in their, in their, in their mind? Would you cause a song to be rising right now in their spirit, Lord? Oh, Jesus, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. Lord, our hearts break for these dear ones. We don't know their stories, yet there's something within us. If we look around and see them standing, it says, Oh, Jesus, would you come now and make a deposit? And take action, just like you did in Luke chapter 7 with this widow. Take action that would produce awe and worship. We ask this because we know you care. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit salemalliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.